May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So another Irish joke for St. Patrick's Day, which was a week ago. The Reverend Sean is the vicar of the Protestant parish in Southern Ireland and father of a Protestant parish. And Father Patrick is the priest of a Roman Catholic church across the road. One day they are seen together erecting a sign which says, The end is near. Turn yourself around now before it's too late. As a car sped by, the driver leans out his window and leaves and yells, Leave people alone, you religious nutters. We don't need your lectures. From around the next curve, they hear screeching of tyres and a big splash. Shaking his head, Father Patrick says, That's the third one this morning. Yes, agrees Sean, and then adds, Do you think maybe the sign should say, Bridge Closed? Sometimes understanding some of our readings is a bit like understanding that sign. We're in danger of missing the point altogether. One of our problems is we keep reading the Bible stories as if they are standalone Bible stories. And they're set out in our Bibles like that. They all had their own chapters. So this morning's reading was chapter 9 from beginning to end. They have their own little titles. And it would seem that that is how they should be read, as standalone little stories. And I guess many of us would be surprised to learn that when these books were originally written, there were no chapters, and there were no verses, and there were no titles. Those titles are added now by the editors of of the Bibles when they're printing them. And if you compare Bibles, you'll see that they have different headings and they have have them in different places. I really enjoy it when I hear them being read solemnly out as if they are part of the Holy Scriptures. They're not. They're just chucked in there to help us find those stories when we're looking for them. And from that point of view, the chapters and the verses and the headings are all very useful, but they fool us into thinking that we can then read these stories as standalone stories. Even this morning's really, really, really long reading, we think we can read that as a standalone story. We forget that when Paul wrote his letters, they were designed to be read out loud from beginning to end in one hit, not just little chunks. And when the Gospels were written, they were designed to be read out loud from beginning to end, in one hit. They were not designed to be chopped up into little chunks. So when we chop them up into little chunks and read them bit by bit, it's kind of like watching a movie, but just doing it in little 10-minute segments. And then not watching it in sequence, kind of jumping all over the movie, and leaving big chunks out. I mean, imagine watching your favourite movies like that, and imagine how well you would understand what that movie was about, even if you watched most of it. By the time you got to the end, you'd have lost the thread of the story, lost what the movie writers were trying to do in the story, and, and the impact of it would be lost. But that's what we keep doing 
with the Gospels and with Paul's writings and with the Old Testament readings as well. We all do it. We have to do it every Sunday. And the commentaries don't help. Most of the time they just talk about the passage that's in front of us. And very rarely do they talk about how they fit in with the rest of that that book or what's happening around it, around it. There's really no way around it. But whenever we do read these story, stories, we have to remember that actually they fit within a wider context. So this morning's passage should be read in relation to the rest of John. It belongs to the rest of John. And the rest of John belongs to it. An example of that is last week's reading, the story about the Samaritan woman. And we often just read it on its own, and a lot of the comments on uh, the internet and commentaries, they just dealt with that story on their own, and they jump over the woman, and they miss the fact that it contrasts this woman with Nicodemus. Those two stories are very close together, and if you read John all the way through, you would get that. Here's Nicodemus, here's this woman. And they react entirely differently. They are two parts of the same story. They belong together and they belong to today's readings. Today's readings, we've just heard a very long chunk of it. But in fact, because we've only heard that chunk, we miss the fact that this is a story about what Jesus says about himself in chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light for life. So he says that, and then we have the story. And because the lectionary writers took pity on us and stopped after the end of chapter 9, we didn't carry on to everything else that Jesus said, which is another 21 verses. That's in chapter 10. It has its own heading, the Good Shepherd. We rarely read that passage in relationship to the story we've just read. Oh, that's a different story. But in fact, it's Jesus' commentary on what he just did. So we keep missing what Jesus is saying about that event. That we kind of put it off somewhere else. Oh, well, it's a different story. It's a different thing. It's got its own heading. Here, Jesus is the light of the world. Here, he's the good shepherd. So it must be a different thing. The titles are different. It's a different chapter. Surely it's different. No, it's the same story. It just carries on. And in fact, this story is a story about Jesus, or John, planting Jesus firmly in the Good Shepherd tradition, which starts with the Psalm 23, a tradition that carries on through Scripture and has strong messianic kind of ideas about it by the time of Jesus and John and the other Gospel writers. They are claiming that tradition for John. It's why we have the 23rd Psalm today. I mean, you wouldn't kind of guess it, but the, the lecture readers are saying, this is a reading about John being. Uh, this is about a reading about Jesus being the good shepherd. So they give us the beginnings of that tradition, the twenty-third psalm. So let's have a look at this morning's reading then. 
Well, last time, last week, we had Jesus returning from Jerusalem to Galilee. And in the intermediate, in the bits in between, he's gone to Galilee, he's gone back to Galilee, he's done some other stuff, and now he's come back to Jerusalem. And he's been in the temple where an adulterous woman was brought to him and he dealt with that. And no one thought they were sinless enough to be able to throw stones. So they left and uh, she left. And then he says that he is the light of the world. And that encourages some of the Pharisees to have a conversation with him, which becomes quite heated. And by the end of that conversation, they're trying to stone him. So he hides. So this story is set with him hiding from the Pharisees who were going to stone him. And then, while he's keeping low, the disciples ask, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Which at lots of levels is a very interesting question, isn't it? I mean, theologically, we don't think that blindness is caused by sin. But actually, at a deep level, we do. Because when bad things happen to us, the question we ask is, what did I do wrong to make this happen? Even people who have no faith in God ask that question. I sat in the chapel talking to a man who was dying of prostate cancer, and he'd never been in a church, and he'd never believed in God, and he'd never talked to a minister before, but there he was saying, What did I do that was so wrong that I'm being punished with this? So there is the question that just sits just below the surface. What did I do wrong? What sin caused this? Why am I being punished? And medically, well, we know that sin doesn't cause blindness. We know blindness is caused when... Stuff gets in the, in the eyes that stop either the light getting in or the light being able to register or the optic nerve gets disruptive or the brain can't cope with those messages anymore. We know what causes blindness and it's not sin. But in Jesus' world, sin does cause blindness. And in Jesus' world, blindness is when the light inside the eye goes out. So for us, the light is external and it has to go into the eye. In his world, the light is in the eye and it comes out. So you have to have light in your eye to go out so that you can see. And if there's no light in your eye, you can't see. So that's a very important part of the story. If you try to put in our 21st century Western medical models on the story, you'll miss that point. The light is in the eye. So, the disciples ask the question. It's not a controversial question. It's just a kind of conversational question. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? It's a pretty standard question. And Jesus says, now this is from the message, so it's not strictly a translation. But a number of the commentators said the way we translate Jesus' comment often kind of misses how the Greek works. So I thought I'd use the message. And the message says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. And then, through the mud and the washing, 
He restores the light to the man's eyes. That's what the healing does. Now this turns out to be a pretty controversial act because it's the Shabbat, the Sabbath. And when the Pharisees find out, they are once again pretty grumpy with Jesus. Now at this point Jesus leaves the story for the longest period that he does in all of John. He is absent from the story. And the blind man, who has no idea what Jesus looks like because he was blind, but he can recognise his voice because he wasn't deaf, is left to face the music, first of all with his community. Now, many of them are not sure if he really is the man that was blind, which seems a little odd to us, but actually, in his community, he lived on the edge. Why? Well, because he was a sinner, or his parents were a sinner. Somebody was a sinner. He had been judged to be a sinner, so he was born blind. So they paid him little or no attention. He lived on the edge. They were blind to him. So this is not just a story about his blindness, but also their blindness to him. But now he can see, which means his sins have been forgiven, which means he is restored to that community. They can no longer be blind to him. There he is. They have no reason to hold him at arm's length. He's right in front of him, them, and he can see. No longer a sinner. And they have to deal with that. It confronts them. And the Pharisees, well, they're not blind because they know the law. And they know that this stuff should not be happening on the Shabbat, on the Sabbath. They will not turn a blind eye to these kind of shenanigans. So they interrogate the once blind man. And in the process, he shows them this man who was thought to be blind because he was a sinner. He shows the learned insiders that their blind adherence to the law without any compassion and without any generosity and without any love, renders them blind. And that takes us back to the first question. Rabbi, who sinned? These men or their parents, causing them to be blind? That question is implied in John's Gospel. It's a circle. Well, Jesus hears about all the goings-on and returns. But the man doesn't recognise him because he's never seen him, because he was blind. But he recognises the voice. And unlike Nicodemus, who didn't get it, but like the Samaritan woman who did get it, he understands that his identity is now in Jesus. He has a new family. The old Ties to family and community are gone. He has been born from above, born from spirit and water, and has a new identity. And so, he worships Jesus. Jesus has put light in his eyes, allowing him to see so much more than just what is around him. He can see the reign of God breaking open all about him, gathering up people like him, 
the outsiders, the people on the edge, people who have been told all their lives they did not belong, are now being told they do belong. People who have been told all their lives that God had no compassion for people like them, are now being told they belong in the heart of God's compassion. And so he responds to that with his worship, which is a, a sign of his trust and his loyalty to Jesus, which is what belief is in John's Gospel, in all the Gospels. Belief is trust and loyalty. Well, where are we then in this story? The story about the blind man who could see. Are we with the Pharisees who are thinking that we've got it all sussed? That we are in the in-group? But are in danger of being blind to God's compassion and generosity and love? Or are we with the bystanders, the people of his community, getting on with life but not sure, thinking we can see but not sure, thinking we can see but blind to so much and to so many people? Or are we with the once blind man who can now see, who has had the light of Christ Placed in his eyes, and who teaches the insiders about what the reign of God is like. Trouble is, we are the insiders, aren't we? Who are the people on the outside who can see who we struggle with? This Lent, are we willing to have Jesus place his light in our eyes? And if Jesus does place his light in our eyes, what would we see differently? Who would we see differently? How would we live differently? Let's just spend a moment in silence thinking about those questions.